Military Mom Talk Radio. We know behind every soldier, sailor, airman, and marine is the family supporting them. Now, in our 16th season, with over 500 episodes in 17 countries, we are Radio Strong. Now, here are your hosts, Sandra Beck and Robin Boyd. Hey everybody, this is Sandra Beck and I'm here today with Paula Mounier. She is famous for a borrowing of bones and her series with Mercy Carr and we've got a new one out and I have to tell you, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, the cover is gorgeous and we're going to talk to Paula today about publishing, about writing, about her new book that is coming out and specifically we're going to start with the cover because Paula, one of the things that I can count on with your book is not only is it a great read, a great mystery but the cover evokes this mood and it's so pretty and you know a borrowing of bones kind of had this yellow uh kind of sunsetty thing going on and your current one the wedding plot not only has a dog on the front which i'm like oh i love that but it's like that purpley mysterious navy blue like it really just the cover grips you and i want to talk about how did the cover come about well, thank you so much. Lovely to see you again to be here on your show and to talk to all of your listeners. Yes, I love the cover. Originally, you know, it's it's a book about a wedding, right? A destination wedding in Vermont in June, which is big time wedding season in Vermont. Everybody goes to Vermont because it's beautiful in June to get married. And so we didn't want it to look too much like a cozy because it's not a cozy it's a traditional mystery so we wanted a little sense of foreboding so that we couldn't go with just a june wedding kind of cover because that would be too light right we wanted something that that spoke to the mystery that surrounds mm. this old old tavern turned venue where the the destination wedding takes place and which of course Bridezilla aside, murder happens, right? So we wanted to give a sense of that. So that's what I loved. And I finally, I finally just went online and found my own old 1800s, you know, building that they could use for the cover because they just couldn't find one that said New England to me. I wanted it to say New England. I wanted it to say old, but I also wanted it to say very ups, upscale because I modeled this destination wedding place on a real place in Vermont that has won best luxury hotel in the world more than once. It's a very exclusive, Ooh. exclusive place. So I wanted to model it on that because I wanted to write about rich people and sure. weddings and murder. Ooh, <laughs> you know, like who doesn't love that rich people, weddings and murders and throw in a dog like Elvis is in there. So, you know, absolutely. And you've absolutely. won awards for how you handle animals in your your writing. Yes, I have. I've been lucky enough to to have written dog characters that resonate with readers. And I think it's because I'm such a dog person myself and a cat person. There are also cats in the book mm -hmm. because I just love animals. And I think that comes through. 
I think so too, you know, and from one dog lover to another, you know, I think we post, I know I post as many dog pictures as I do kid pictures and my kids are still active. Like it's not like they're 40. So nobody's going to post their kid picture. You know, they're active in high school doing things, but you know, dogs are just so great and so funny. And, and it's interesting to, for me to see a dog character come alive in a book, you know, usually there's animals in there. There might be a horse, there might be a, a, a cat or a dog. And, you know, it's funny I just ordered you know this is totally off topic but I had Jenny and the Cat Club which was my childhood favorite book where the you know the cats can ice skate they can go down the firehouse pole and I was talking to a, a grandma and I said you should get Jenny and the Cat Club because it's very rare that somebody can write really good animal characters and and it's funny I bought Esther Averill's classic and uh, for myself because I missed it. And when you put Elvis in the book, the first one, the first appearance of Elvis, you fall in love with him. I did, I did fall in love with him. I had done this fundraiser for Mission Canine Rescue and they rescue military working dogs mm -hmm. who suffer bad lives after their service is finished. So they rescue them and they find them forever homes after they've served our country. And I met some of these dogs and I fell in love with them. Paula, I'm just going to jump in here for a second because now is a really good time to thank our sponsor. And our sponsor today is Best Fiends, and they have been with us for a couple years. And right now I'm playing Season of the Seas on Best Fiends, and you guys are going to want to totally check it out. I want you to download Best Fiends for free from the App Store or Google Play. That's Best Fiends, friends without the R, free from the App Store or Google Play because, you guys, it is super fun. And, you know, enough is never enough. And sometimes I don't feel satisfied with what I have. I want more. I want more fun. And that's why having Best Fiends in my pocket on my phone is just so great. Because once you've downloaded Best Fiends, you can play anywhere, even without an internet connection, which is great if you find you're stuck without Wi-Fi. You can collect tons of fiends. You can get powered up as you play more levels. And every win brings new challenges. And there are thousands of puzzles to play. And I have to tell you, you know, a lot of people talk about this digital detox. I need a people detox. I'm tired of people. I want to go into my digital world and I want to blow up bombs. I want to activate friends. I want to beat new levels. I want to spin the fiend of fortune. These are the things that energize me. People don't energize me. So I have to withdraw. I have to go into my own little world. And that's where best fiends comes in because it's always at the ready in my pocket. And I really love the game. I encourage you guys to try it because you can have so much fun. You can rest, recharge, rejuvenate, all those good things. I want you to download Best Fiends free from the App Store or Google Play. Plus, earn even more with $5 worth of in-game rewards when you reach level 5. That's Friends Without the R, Best Fiends, Friends Without the R, Best Fiends. You'll be so glad you did. Now, we are talking today with best-selling author, military mom, and military brat, Paula Mounier, about her book, The Wedding Plot. And you talked about uh, these dogs and, and the dogs that you modeled Elvis after. I based Elvis on one of these working dogs, a Malinois, very fierce. And then of course, during the pandemic, a couple of books later, mm -hmm. we rescued a Malinois who's yes. now we have our own Elvis at home. Her name <laughs> is Blondie. And it's, it's given me even more insight into the, the nature of these dogs, having one yes. right here at home. 
Yes, because they are all different. You know, I've had nine dogs in my life. Each of them have their own embroidered Christmas stocking, uh, <laughs> even after, you know, because I, I put them all on my um, my banister. I hang them all up and, you know, dogs past and present. When the kids are little, they're like, those are the ghost stockings of the dead dogs. <laughs> but that's I, a great idea. Yeah, but now, but I but I think of them because, you know, when holiday comes around, you know, you want to remember these, you know, important pieces of your life and we have christmas ornaments and we have pictures and you know we have music that stimulates things and so i had the idea after my first dog passed away that i would get her a stocking and i went to pottery barn it's a pretty one it's a red and white one with their name on it and now i have all of them and they go down my banister and i tell you i love it i love looking at their stockings and when i hang them up i kind of pet them and you know hang them up you know they've passed on and um but each one had a very distinct personality. And I am, like probably many dog owners, my dogs have a voice. <laughs> they have a voice in my head. And if I'm cooking, you know, like Sally is my current big golden retriever and Chicken Nugget is my little uh, Chihuahua Terrier mix. And Chicken Nugget has a New Jersey accent. He smokes a cigar and he swears a lot. And then Sally, who's my big golden retriever, she just talks like this in my head. Oh, mommy, <laughs> could I have that stick of butter? And, you know, we have this whole dialogue, but you were able to bring that kind of dialogue to my head with Elvis. And that was really cool. Oh, well, thank you so much. No, I love Elvis and I love... Um, Susie Bear, who's a Newfoundland mm -hmm. retriever mix. And, you know, I always have new dogs in yep. the books because I just love dogs and I'm always meeting great new dogs and I can't rescue them all. So <laughs> my husband's drawn the line at three now, but I don't know until we find a Newfie because he's, he's, he really wants a Newfie puppy. So I'm sure that will only last as long as, as uh, we don't find a Newfie puppy for rescue, but we have three rescue dogs and a rescue cat. And they're all completely different, yes, completely different, you know, and I love your idea. I, I may have to do that. I hope you do, because it brings me great joy. And everybody out there, you know, we have stockings for our kids. We have the mom stocking, the dad stocking. Why not the dog stocking? And they're just little ones, but they're 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 my heart. And it's funny when we evacuate here, I live in fire zone and I have to evacuate my house. So like the first thing I do is I grab my two computers, even though they're backed up online. I'm sentimental about my computers. I grab those. I have a box of my my dad's and mine and my kids stuffed bear as kids so I I grab that box and then I run in and I grab I have one special Christmas box that I always throw in the car because it has like my stockings and my precious ornaments it's like my grab and go box and those are in there because they are very special and animals make such a a hole in our heart when they're gone and that's where I felt you know Elvis reminded me of one of my dogs I think that's why I'm so attracted and so attached yeah. to Elvis and so Elvis lives on in your you know in your book and Elvis lives on and in if it's patterned after a dog in your heart you get to immortalize that dog in your writing and I think that's amazing no, it's lovely, actually. And and I love this idea of your stockings. I may have to, to steal that and do that because I, I just did a post for my newsletter and it was about kids and pets because it was National Kids and Pets Day. And I had these great pictures of, of that I found when of my dad that my dad carried in his wallet of me as maybe I'm maybe eight and this huge 
Weimaraner named Baron, right? <laughs> and I've, that he, his dog, but who, you know, I love that dog. And so I think it's a great way to memorialize them. So I'm definitely going to steal that. Well, I'm so glad that you are. <laughs> So let's talk about memorializing people or or things in your work. Like in my uh, Powered Up show that I do, I have four shows, Military Mom, Coach Talk Radio, Powered Up Talk Radio, and Motherhood Talk Radio. And in my Powered Up Talk Radio show, there's always a little blue butterfly that's hidden somewhere in the graphics, somewhere in the arts. And that little blue butterfly is for my mom. She passed away the month that I first started on the air with that show. And that show was designed designed to find out what happens after we die. Where do we go? I talk to rabbis and shamans and priests and hospice nurses and hospice doctors and orderlies who work in hospices. You know, what what happens? What goes on? I was, you know, investigating this and I found to create a podcast for NDEs and all sorts of interesting things that happen to people. And what's nice is that my mom is like tucked away hidden in little places. And that's really important to me. Have you ever memorialized someone in your um, books that have shown up that you know in your heart is the spirit of this person? Well, the grandmother mm-hmm. in the books, Patience, she's Mercy's grandmother and she's a veterinarian, but she's very much modeled on my own grandmother, Emma, who was a very practical and hilarious person who could do practically anything. I mean, she was just really, really smart. She was, you know, grew up on a farm, small town, you know, in Southern Indiana, not sophisticated life, but very smart, very loving and just wonderful. So I certainly, from the very beginning, Patience was based on my grandmother. And then this latest book, The Wedding Plot, while I was writing it, my dad died. And my dad, large, he loomed large in my life. The colonel was the best, but he really was, in the truest sense of the word, an officer and a gentleman. Mm -hmm. And he was just a great guy. And so I found myself unable to write. I just couldn't. I I was sort of wallowing in grief. I couldn't move forward and with the book or with anything else for that matter. And so finally, I realized that the only way I was going to do this was to write my dad into the book. So there's a character called the Colonel in the book. And I, I think somewhere dad is smiling, you know. Well, I'm smiling. You know, I remember your father passing away and you know how heartbroken you are. I mean, we are most of us. I will not say every, because I said on the air once that, you know, when every parent dies, it's like and then people wrote in and they're like, no, I was not blah blah blah. So like, okay. Yeah. So disclaimer, but when a cherished parent dies. And when my mom died and when Misty died, which was my my soul dog, um, I had a three month period where to try to create anything was so intensely painful because I think we go to that emotional center and my emotional center was so bruised and broken from my mom's passing and Misty died in July and my mom died in September. So 16 years with my dog and then, you know, 35 years with my mom, you know, that was was really difficult for me. And it felt like my heart was squeezed shut. And I think sometimes writer's block is from grief not 
fear, not other things. I mean, it's complicated to kind of untangle where writer's block comes from. But I didn't have just writer's block. I had writer's block, reader's block, radio block. Like everything was just a cataclysmic shutdown. And I think it just takes time. Like it took a little time. And I think you handled it beautifully by writing him into your book. That's why the butterfly appears in Powered Up everywhere, because my mom floated in and out of my work. Sure, sure. No, and, and what a lovely image of your mom floating in and out of your work. That's lovely. Yeah. And I, like I said, I think dad, dad would get a real kick out of this, you know, um, this character who is very much, very much based on my father and, and uh, quite a character. My dad was a character in real life. And in this, the colonel is a character in, in the book. So it was. Well, I love that you call your dad the colonel. I call my dad the commander like they're and they are larger <laughs> than life. But did you find with their grandchildren, they were big pots of goo. Like my dad was so tough on me growing up and straighten up, fly right. You know, this is the way you do it. And he'd even wake us up going, and he'd stand at the foot of our beds and we'd have to get up and make our bed and, you know, all this good stuff. But then with my grandkids, he's like, come over here, sit on grandpa's lap. Let me buy you a chocolate bar. Like, are you kidding me? No, my dad taught my children to call him Papa Colonel. (laughs) And he was biggest mush ball ever which i found you know lovely and also annoying at the same time because he again very like you very tough on me i was expected to be perfect in every way that's right and and but my 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 kids his grandkids they were perfect just by existing you know and he he bought them each their first dog he got them each their first car i mean he totally spoiled them well, and that's, you know, I'm happy for your grandchildren because that's what they're supposed to do. But the daughter in me is like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> like, you know? I know, I know. I but know. it's those study of relationships that make your characters great because your characters come to life, Paula, and they become real. Now, you spent four books now with Mercy, right? Yes, yes. So is she walking around your living room? Is she there when you do the dishes? You know, because one of the things that happens to me when I read really good series, that person becomes real. It's no more unreal than Gibbs on NCIS. Like I I used to see him because they film NCIS in my town and a lot of stuff is shot here. So we do, we used to see Mark Harmon a lot. And I know it's Mark Harmon because he hit my car at one point, um, backed into me. <laughs> So I know he's a physical man, but I'm like, every time I see him, I'm like, oh my God, there's Gibbs, there's Gibbs, like Gibbs rules, I need my Gibbs hat. And it's so real to me. And your character Mercy now is so real to me. I expect that I should be able to call her up and interview her and have, you know, tea with her while I interview her on Zoom. Well, she's real to me too. All of my characters are real to me. And it's it's a strange thing we novelists do, right? We We sit alone in a room, making up stories about imaginary people doing imaginary things in an imaginary but, world. Right. Exactly. But it's real somehow. And yes. I miss her if I haven't written about her for any length of time. So I say, Oh, what's mercy doing? And, and I can't help but plan, you know, the next thing that could happen to mercy. Right. Sure. So, yeah. Now, how much of you is mercy? Well, I don't, you know, that's a good question because I, I think, we bring ourselves to every character we write, yeah. even the villains, right? Yeah. Um, but that said, I think she's 
my idea of who I might have been had I been born later and my father would have sent me to West Point had they accepted women. (laughs) Because I was an only child and I certainly saw all the eldest sons of all my peer, you know, other families, military families, those oldest sons, they, it was pick an academy, you're going, right? Right. So I, I missed that because I was too, born too soon for West Point, right? So I always think, you know, that could have been my life had I been born, you know, 10 years later, whatever. And so I've always wondered, you know, how would I have stood up? Right. Would, would I have succeeded in that environment? And I, I think it's probably just as well I'm a writer. But and, but I do think that growing up in the military and having a military father and having all my friends who were the eldest sons go off to their, you know, the appropriate academy. I think I always wondered what would it be like? And mercy is my way of saying, oh, this is what it might have been like. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I think that's beautiful because, you know, we all have questions about our life like i grew up in a very small farming community and i had a boyfriend who was a farmer and all i could think of is oh my god paul i don't want this life i don't want the work i don't want the dirt i don't want i don't want those animals i don't want i don't want the finickiness of the weather affecting my success like you know there was all these things and then what is 25 years old i'm ghost writing for a, a large publishing company and you know that produced romantic fiction and what do i write a girl who inherits a farm and there she decides go. that she's gonna take over the farm and i've i didn't make that connection until your West Point story going, but that was a big what if, you know, when you choose to change your life or you choose a different path or you can't choose a path, how fun is it as an author to write the what if in your life? Absolutely. I mean, that's the joy of being a novelist is that you get to lead, you get to lead other people's lives. You know, it's for, it's really, it's really walking a mile in their shoes or, you know, 90,000 words. Right, right. Right. 90,000 steps. Exactly. So when you, when you create these characters, how much control do you have over them? Now, I know you have control over the keyboard and the word choice and the pen, but when you're in flow, you know, you're inspired, you're writing, everything's flowing. How much of it do you really have control of, or is it unfolding as it goes? Well, you really have to trust the process because every time I sit down to write a new book, I, it's as if I never wrote a novel before. I seem to have forgotten everything I learned and you have to let your subconscious really do the work. So I always have an idea. I usually have an outline. I have a list of 60 scenes say to right, start you make cards right you mentioned one time right. on an interview you make index cards 60 right. scenes right 60 scenes to get me through the first draft and then i just have to trust the process because there's always something that i don't know and that's when the characters take over i think when writers talk about that that's what happens like with with the wedding plot there was a the first the very first scene i wrote was a scene about this guy yeah. and he was a kind of a yogi, right? His name was Bodhi St. George. And he, he, he's the spa director at this fancy schmancy uh, destination wedding venue. And 
he hears he lives on a goat farm where they make artisanal cheese, which is a big deal in Vermont. And he, he hears the goats bleeding and he pulls a Glock out from under his couch. Now this is a guy who's like into Buddha and baseball and teaches yoga, right? But it's from his former life. And then he runs off into the night. So I created this character. I have no idea where this character came from. He was not on the cards, right? He's not on the cards. What are you doing? You're not on the cards. How dare you? Yeah, I I just had this flash in my head, yes, of a goat farm, artisanal cheese, this guy, this yogi who had a a darker past, Mm -hmm. right? Who became a yogi as a way of sort of mitigating that past, right? Coming to atoning for that past. Exactly. And and uh, and I get and so I thought, okay, he's in the beginning of the book, but then he's gonna disappear, he's gonna be gone for most of the book. And so my editor says to me, Where's Bodie? Right. Where'd he go? He said, We love Bodie. Bodie has to be in the book. Weave him in more. Why why would you create this great character and then not use him more? And so I didn't really think of him as a great character because he just sort of came to me, you know? And so now, of course, I had to go back and weave him into the book and he's become a great character now. And and even I like him now. So hopefully readers will like him too. But I think that's the kind of thing that happens where you don't have control or your subconscious is really in control. And these ideas just sort of come to you and it's the writer's job to recognize it and write it down quickly before it disappears. Well, that's interesting you say about the, you know, write it down quickly before it disappears. I was interviewing somebody last year who said something that stuck with me. And she said, and she was a spiritual teacher, and she said, you know, ideas float around in the ethos Mm -hmm. and people connect with them. And, you know, the idea comes in. And if you don't execute that idea, it will go back into the ethos and be executed by someone else. And that's how she explained how there's similar products in the world, similar stories, similar movies, similar whatever. You know, I thought that was very interesting to say, you know, how much is it what we create versus how much comes through us co-creating with whatever belief system is out there? Well, it's like that you know, Jungian collective unconscious, right? Yeah. All those ideas are out there. And, and that's why if you have a good idea, you need to write it fast because you can't copyright an idea. You right. can only copyright the execution of that idea. So get an idea, execute. Execute. So let's talk about execution. And, you know, I always love to ask this question. I asked it to Karen Kingsbury uh, last a couple days ago when I was interviewing her. She's got 70 books and her books are now being made into movies, which I believe and television, which I believe Borrowing of Bones will either become its own mystery series or it'll become, you know, a movie on one of these wonderful streaming services that we all enjoy because it is so visual. Like I could literally see her, um, you know, trucking around on the on the stage played by a young Pam Dauber, which is how I see her in my (laughs) mind. That's interesting. Okay. Yeah. So she looks like a young Pam Dauber to me, but um, like when she was in the Mark and Mindy days, um, that's the face that I see. and of course, you know, and she's married to Gibbs, so why wouldn't wouldn't I have that vision? <laughs> right. Um, but so she talked about her her day, like what her writing day looks like. And I think that's interesting to a lot of budding writers out there because we seem to get letters written in and emails and, and social media posts to my shows when I do these author interviews of 
they want to know what an author's day looks like because some of them have all the time in the world. They're retired. So what does that look like? Then we've got our young moms who have these ideas and they're trying to you know, tack it in behind naps and school and take the kids to school. They got three hours to create and get all the housework and everything done before the kid gets home from preschool. You know, there's all this juggling and I think success leaves clues. So talk to me about what your typical writing day looks like. And then I want you to juxtapose what a deadline looming writing day looks like, because if I'm guessing those things look diametrically different. Well, well, they do, you know, writing your first book, you don't you usually don't have a deal. So you just take as long as you want. You can rewrite at your leisure. It's great. Now I've been that, you know, mom writing while the kids are at preschool. I've been that mom. And then I've also been the, the mom writing with a full-time job and handling teenagers. And now my kids have grown and gone, but I have a day job, you know, I'm a literary agent. And right. And so I have to write around that day job, just like a lot of my clients do. You know, not everyone has the luxury of, of having full time to write. So I have to do that. I tend to write in spurts and I, I tend to write scene by scene. You know, I go by the cards, pick out a card, write the scene. <laughs> do you write them in order or do you just oracle them and pick a random? I try to write them in order. I certainly write the first 5,200 pages in order. Then Then I'm kind of on a roll. Once I'm hundred pages or so into the book and I start waking up in the middle of the night thinking about it that's when I know okay I'm really in it now gotcha and I, I can go full speed ahead I write slowly at the beginning because I'm I'm teaching myself what the story is about sure. right um, and then I pick up speed as we hurdle towards the end and then I tend to write the end in like a, a huge you know, marathon kind of thing. And do you have the end in mind? You know, there are some authors who have, they they have that end of what they want. And some, some of them even write the scene, the end scene, so they know where they're going. About three quarters of the way through or two thirds of the way through, I tend to write the last scene. Gotcha. But what I don't know, I usually know most of the plot. And in a mystery, mm -hmm. you know, there's usually the end and then another shoe drops. Right. Right. The other shoe drops. So I usually know the end, but I don't know that other shoe until I get there. Ah, yeah, because I have to. I have to have lived the story myself to see that other shoe coming. Right to find the shoe. Right, exactly. So I and I've learned just to not panic that I don't know what the other shoe is going to be, but it will come and it always does. So, yay, yay. So do you get up in the morning, take the dogs for a walk, then have coffee and then write for a few hours, have lunch, write for a few more hours? What does your day look like? Well, I write around my work schedule, right? Okay. I am not really a morning person. And so I do stuff that I don't have to, doesn't take any thought until I'm well caffeinated enough to actually <laughs> create. So I do emails and, you know, that kind of stuff and take care of the dogs. And, you know, my mother lives with us. So get my mother, you know, set for the day, that kind of stuff. And then I, then I usually, most of my day is devoted to agenting. Okay. And then I usually write at night. Ah, so after dinner? After dinner, yes. I write after dinner. And sometimes in the afternoon, like I'll take, when I'm not writing, I nap. <laughs> but when I'm writing, I'm on deadline, then I write some, say from noon to two. Gotcha. Gotcha. Because I think, you know, you just debunked like, four or five of the usual um 
I'm not going to call them complaints, but hindrances that 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 writers who write into when I do these writer series um, say they're like, well, I don't have time because I have kids or I have to take care of someone. Okay, well, you do. Then it's like, well, I can't do this because I have a full time job. Well, you do. Then, oh, you know, I I married and, you know, I, he takes a lot of it. Uh, you do like, <laughs> right. you but know, there's always a reason you can't write, you know, I mean, honestly, that said, you have to decide how important it is to you. Right. And I have a friend, Jane Cleland, and she writes mysteries. She's run like number 18 of her Josie Prescott wow. mysteries for Minotaur. They're fabulous antiques mysteries set in New Hampshire. And, you know, whenever I think I feel sorry for myself because I don't have the time or, or I have a tight deadline or whatever it is, I talk to Jane and Jane says, hey, well, she sets me straight. So when I was complaining about um, I had a really, really full schedule and I didn't know how I was going to get this next book done in time. And she said, well, she said, you know, I'm, she's teaching full-time at CUNY at the city university mm-hmm. of New York. She's getting her MFA and she's writing a book. And she said, you know, I really had no time except I only had 20 minutes between classes because every night was spent doing homework. So I had 20 minutes between classes. So I would, spend the first 10 minutes rereading what I wrote the day before and the next 10 minutes writing. So she wrote her book literally 10 minutes a time and she met her deadline. So I feel like after that story, I can never complain again (laughs) about not being able to sneak writing in one way or another, right? Absolutely. Well, when I look at my most productive years, you know, in is it was when I was the busiest. You know, what do they say? Like when you need something done, ask a busy person because they just get it done, get it in. Now right. I'm going to ask you some technical questions. Do you sure. dictate your stories and, you know, do you handwrite them? Like, how do you do your first draft? Well, I mean, I have my, I handwrite my cards when I'm plotting, but then I usually have a notebook that I write in, mm-hmm. but now I have this wonderful iPad air or whatever it's called ipad yep. pro it's called an ipad pro and it has an apple pencil in it nice and this apple pencil lets you write longhand and then it changes it to text to for text you. yep it's brilliant and i love it and it also lets me edit old school like i'm editing on hard copy but i'm editing on the file it's awesome that all my so clients cool. have to read yeah, my clients have to read my chicken scratch, but that's okay. They get- that's okay. That's okay. Well, one of the things that that I started using now, I'm not a novelist, but I do have to create a lot of content um, with respect to my company, a lot of blogs, a lot of things. I found that the Dragon app that you can put on your iPad. And this happened when I was undergoing my cancer treatments. I still had to keep everything going. I couldn't not do it, but I couldn't focus on the keyboard i couldn't sit up at my um desk i laid in bed a lot and i started dictating and what was funny is i took a dictation uh learned how to dictate my news stories when i went to northwestern i went to medill's journalism school for undergraduate and they said you know you might be you know deep in the african jungle you might be in the middle east you might be in the wilds of canada and you don't have the ability to get to a typewriter you can't handwrite anything so we had a whole class where we 
we had to dictate the story that we were going to, you know, a 12 inch story or a 10 inch story. And you had to have it all in your head. That was so hard for me. And I struggled, struggled, struggled. Then when I was sick and undergoing these cancer treatments, I'm like, I came across it. They're like, oh, they use it in autopsies. NCIS, sorry. <laughs> but I put it on my phone and I bought it. And I'm like, this is heaven. And I found just like getting used to um, typing and getting used to handwriting, I'm now getting to the point where I'm dictating 99% of my emails. And then I store them. And then when I sit down to my computer, I just scan through them. It takes me two seconds, but I can answer 50, 75 emails in an hour. And now I've got to the point where I'm just going to say, I'm so good that I can answer 90% of my emails using that dictation and send. Yes, that's great. I do use a dictation a lot. And when I get stuck, yeah, I use uh, an app called Rev, which is you know a dictation app, but a real person transcribes it for you. Nice. So, so that's good. Um, now, I know that the dictation apps have gotten better at, at transcribing and you know, telling your own voice and all that kind of stuff. So, um, but I still use Rev because it's so easy and they do do it for me. And what I love about it is when I get stuck, I can just talk my way through the next scene mm. that I'm stuck on. And then it comes to me and I all in a Word doc and I can then edit it. I can fix yeah. it. So you, you can't fix an empty page, but right. you can fix Right. Joel Fotenos, I keep giving him credit for this. When I was talking to him, he's like, you can't fix what isn't written down. So whatever it is, just spew it out. And it's funny because your your rev sounds like my dragon because my dragon um, on the iPhone, dragon anywhere, and they're not a sponsor, you know, neither is rev. We just love using their products. Um, and then it goes over to one of my assistants who then cleans it up for me so that I get it in a Word doc that I can consume. It's wonderful. I mean, I love editing. I love rewriting. Writing first is, harder. Is, the hard, is the hard part for me. It's the yeah. first trip that kills me. But once I'm through that, then it's just rewriting. And I love the rewriting process. It's icing the cake. It's decorating the house. It's all the fun part. Yeah, it's all the fun part because the hard work is done. Yeah. So when you, okay, so that's, that's how you, you work nights and weekends. Now let's fast forward to deadline. What does deadline Paula look like? <laughs> uh, deadline Paula is frantic. <laughs> you know, I started off as a journalist and I never, ever missed a deadline ever right. as a journalist, but then I was writing stories that were 500 words, thousand words, right. 5,000 5, words tops. Now I'm writing hundred thousand word novels. And I like when my dad died, I, I needed a couple extra months. So, you know, but, but that's not a missed deadline. That's a change deadline. Missing a deadline is it's time targeted and you blew it. You did not blow it. You didn't miss that deadline. You changed the deadline. That's very different. Well, I'm not sure my editor sees it that way, but I, I like to see it that way, but you know, I struggle to meet my deadline sometimes. And I think that's simply because I've been writing all my, I, my first book was published in 2018. So of course I, I made that one, <laughs> but the others, you know, were all written like when I was moving, when I was taking care of my, my dad and yeah. my mom, when the pandemic hit, it was just all these crazy things happening. So I'm, I'm hopeful that, you know, I won't miss any more deadlines going forward because I'll be back 
well, if we can call this normal, I guess yeah. this is as close as we get to normal. But but I've also learned how to manage my time better. Mm. I mean, I think that's one thing about the pandemic is that you really learned what you really had to show up for. Yes, <laughs> because you very little actually. <laughs> Yeah, it turns out you don't have to show up for anything. (laughs) Or wear um, pants. (laughs) Right, exactly. So it really was really a lesson to me is how to juggle, you know, how to juggle these three things, writing, teaching, agenting, which are the three sort of, you know, the three pillars of my stool, right? These three things that I do and, uh, and what was most important and how to get the, the right stuff done at the right time. And so it's been a real lesson for me. And also because, you know, I always worked at a real job, real job, you know, not from home, but a real job where right. structures built in. Right. And I've had to learn to do that myself because being an agent is basically running your own business. Mm-hmm. And then writing is running your own business right. and you're doing it from home with all the complications of home. So it's taken me a while to figure out a system that really works for me, you know, and and now I have, so I'm I'm feeling better about that. And I've also learned to say no. That's a big one. Like saying no, like I think, you know, I don't think I've ever been turned down by an author, (laughs) you know, when I'm like, hey, they're like, oh, I'd love to, I'll I'll make it happen. And I'm like, really, you can wait until tomorrow. It's okay. I mean, I think, you know, as writers are very giving as a general rule, and they tend to be actually really nice people. And I've interviewed, I calculate how many interviews I've done, hour long interviews, I've done over 1700 hour long interviews in my career. I've been on the air for 16 years. So, you know, I talked to a fair amount of people. um, But by and large, authors are the most generous they will send me books if i don't have a copy yet sure i'll pop it right in the mail and they will run down to that post office put that sucker in the mail and off it goes you know so i tend to really enjoy you know the author community um my question for you and then we're going to wrap it up um is do you write an agent and teach in the same space because i am unable to write coach and broadcast in the same place so i have three separate computers at three separate workstations in my house because i am not able to separate those if i sit down to write and there's pressure for an edit to be done on a radio that's due tomorrow i will immediately default to what makes the most money ah well i think for writing I mean, I have my office, as you can see, I have this office. Beautiful. Also the guest room. So it's not always available to me, but most of the time it is. And I do my Zoom and stuff up here because it's quiet and the dogs are downstairs and, you know, it's conducive to Zoom. And so meetings and teaching, I mostly do up here in my office. Writing, it's not so much a place as a psychic space and being alone. Hmm. That when other people are in the room, that's harder for me. Although my husband will tell you that, you know, like my kids used to make fun of me when I was, when I was young and when they were young, they, they'd love to ask me questions when, when they, they thought I would say no. If I were reading a book, they'd be like, okay, mom, can I do X? And I'd go, sure, honey, sure. Whatever you want. And that's because I was reading a book. My nose was in a book and I wasn't really paying attention. So I have very, yeah, yeah. I have really good powers of concentration. So if I'm writing and there are other people in the room, if I can get to that space, of total concentration. I don't even hear them anymore, but it's easier if they're not there. So yes. Or asleep. Yes. Yes, exactly. And there was a wonderful writer who once said, I am not needed in their dreams. 
which I love because when I was young, certainly I only wrote when everybody was asleep. That was the easiest yeah. time to write. And it's still kind of true, which is why I write at night. Everybody's asleep, even the dogs, you know? Um, so it's easier. And I, I think I just need to be alone in mm-hmm. my, you know, imaginary world. It's easier if I'm alone. Right. And there's less energetic pressure. You know, if I have to create, when I create, I can't have my dad blaring all in the family in the living room and, you know, Zach playing his video games upstairs and Max is in the garage with these huge weights because then every once in a while one of those will drop and I'm like, crap, he broke his foot. Then I have to stop, wait and listen. Do I hear the next weight click? Okay, he's fine. You know, because that's, that's yeah, sure. you know, it's very hard to, to, and I love how you identify it as a psychic space because to me, I'm just like, I cannot I cannot deal with everybody's energy they they and I think as a mom we have that you broke your foot or you know did you you know have a seizure because you've been playing video games or my dad did you fall asleep and you know Archie's still blaring like you have to go to bed there's all these competing things in your head well and you can't not listen you know it's like you're always part of you is always listening your peripheral vision is always on you're just anticipating something and so to write, I need to turn that off. Yes. So it's easier if I'm alone and everybody's asleep, they can't get in trouble and I can concentrate, you know? Yeah. Have you ever left? I, you know, Karen Kingsbury told me yesterday that she would sometimes leave the house and go to like a B&B or go to somewhere just for three days in order to get her work done. Have you ever done that? I did it one time when I was about to be married and, um, it was for the second time and uh, you know, truth be told and I was right working on a novel and I kept pushing the date out I wouldn't set a date and finally Michael said to me why won't you set a date do you not want to get married I said oh no but I have to finish my novel first I'm not going to get married again right until I finish my novel because husbands are as distracting as children you know? so it's not more so <laughs> right so so he said well then go go off. I'll watch the kids go. So I booked a week at the Sylvia Beach Hotel on the Oregon coast. If you ever have a chance to go, Sylvia Beach was a patron of the arts. You know, she had Shakespeare and Company, that fabulous bookstore in Paris. She published a lot of Americans, expats, wonderfully well-known figure, patron of the arts. Every room is designed and named after a different writer. Oh, stay the ag- in the Agatha Christie room or Ooh. the room or the Willa Cather room or the Alice. Oh, that's so room. cool. It's, and it's right on the ocean. It's spectacular. When I was there, they had no phones, no internet, no TVs. The third floor, it's this huge old honeymoon hotel. It's called from the 1800s. The third floor was all books and overstuffed chairs with a view of the ocean. I went there for a week. I finished my novel and we got married two months later. Wow. Oh, that's so cool. That's so great. I love that. I was so busy, like laying in those overstuffed chairs, looking at the ocean going, what should I read next? And, you know, but you did, you got your book done. I'm so proud of you. So it's a very good strategy to just go away and do it. That sounds wonderful. All right. Well, where can we get the wedding plot? When is it available? July 19th. 
Woo! July 19th. So, and if you haven't read all the other Mercy Car series, go ahead and get a copy of them. You can also find them on Audible. So, we are here today with Paula Munier. It is spelled M-U-N-I-E-R. You can look her up, Paula Munier. She can find her on Goodreads. You can find her on Barnes & Noble, Amazon, wherever books are sold. You can also go to your bookstore and see her book in there. And I do that all the time. And I take it out and I put it right in the front because she's my friend and I love her. And I'm so proud of all the work you do. We'll be back again next week with another great episode thank you thanks for tuning in to military mom talk radio want more information check us out at militarymomtalkradio.com or find us on itunes for more than 500 free episodes drop us an email or find us on facebook we are looking forward to another great discussion we hope you'll join us on military mom talk radio